Before we begin, I would like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teachings and work at Del Seton Medical Center. Any discussions we have on this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and in no way connected to Del Seton Medical Center. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. Today, we had a great conversation here offsite at Hendolot 2023 in Mexico City with two vascular surgeons and friends of the podcast. Dr. Anahida Dua, who is a professor of surgery at Mass General and uh, with Harvard. And we also had Dr. Zachary Pallister, who is an assistant professor of surgery at Baylor College of Medicine. Today, we kind of dived into the conundrum of the chronic limb threatened ischemia endpoints and the issues associated with putting together a possible good study that will hopefully help us take care of these patients. That and probably a lot of different things that we normally go off base on, but yeah. I hope that you enjoyed as much as we did. It was a great podcast. Let's do it. Vámonos. Thank you. Two vascular surgeons walk into a bar and come out with a podcast. We are talking everything vascular and not. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. Well, hello, everybody. This is Miguel Montero Baker, and this is yet another episode of Life of Flow. It's a podcast that deals with everything vascular and not. And today is a very, very special day. Uh, you've probably heard a few of these, but it's special to me in many ways because we are actually recording from Mexico City. And we are recording in the heart of Hendolat, which is this crazy thing that I've been trying to do with a group of people here in Latin America for many years. And it's evolved in a beautiful way. And today I am here with my co-host, Lucas Ferrer, and two phenomenal vascular surgeons who I not only respect, look up to, and love collaborating with, but I also um, feel free to say that I believe you are both friends of mine. Zachary Pallister, assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and Anaida Duha, associate or professor? Associate. associate. I don't want it to be too fast. Listen, you're going to get there. Get so fast. I believe it. <laughs> Anaita. Listen, I am going like to go on the record. I believe this woman is going to be the president of the SVS. Why Here is there? Why not? Like, well, I, I believe it too. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that. Okay. Do you know, Lucas, or Zach, yeah. uh, do you know that she has her own pack? Right, we're talking a politically driven person that's trying to change the way that we wow. care for patients. Did you know that? I did not know that. Mm hmm. Yes, it's called Healthcare for Action. The PAC was started last year after the Uvalde shooting in Texas. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we get more healthcare workers into Congress and the Senate, so in federal office. Not necessarily because healthcare workers are so much better than anyone else, but more because we need people that know how to collaborate. And who better than us, right? You have a patient that needs to have a good outcome. We sacrifice ourselves. We talk to other teams. If there are differences that we have, we work it out all for the patient. So the country's the patient, and I think we can do the same thing. She's going to be president. I think she will. And I hope that she becomes SVS president because, okay, well, I'm not going to tarnish her career yet, but <laughs> we can talk offline about some things that we have talked about. Um, the establishment requires a lot of refurbishment in many ways, shapes and forms. But um, the beauty about these podcasts is, is we have actually no idea what we're going to talk about. 
about. And that it's really fun. Oh, we have an idea, then we I mean, don't talk about it. I get it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have an idea, and then we just go out down these massive rabbit holes. And um, But anyway, and so I just thought it would be interesting today to talk about how we are missing the point on a lot of our PAD studies and trials and trial designs because of a plethora of things, um, but we are not defining the patients appropriately. Um, I think we are still somehow uh, discussing endpoints that were established many years ago for coronary arterial disease, and somehow we've extrapolated those now to peripheral arterial disease, which makes absolutely like TLR, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so no wonder uh, why a lot of these companies have just spent billions of dollars trying to get some particular device approved. But the design of the study, rightfully so, has, you know, a ton of holes. Uh, and the FDA says, no, that's not cool. I'm not going to approve this thing, right? Yep. And, um, and so it just seems right for us as, by the way, all vascular surgeons uh, to say, well, what's missing? Uh, what are we doing wrong? What could we do better? Um, with the intention of classifying these patients appropriately, following these patients appropriately, doing what we need to do. And this is going to be very interesting because you three come from a large, very heavy academic background, as was I for many years, but I've now kind of transitioned uh, to the dark side or whatever, mm -hmm. or the brighter side, if you ask me. But I'm now an independent private person in an outpatient uh, wound care and uh, vascular interventional suite. So um, what do you guys think? Do you, is that, should we just throw that topic and start there and see where we go with that? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> go. All right. So, Anaida, um, what, ha what are we doing wrong? What are we I doing wrong? We are not having patience. That's what I think. And I don't mean patients in the classic sense, our patients. I mean actual patients. The problem is that, as you said, we are focused on the past and we're using endpoints and we're approaching patients with things that no longer are applicable today. And while the FDA, as you pointed out also, is doing the right thing by saying we want outcomes, we want to know what the, is the leg actually on the patient, did your device actually help that, they are also making a mistake by kind of making everything less complex than it actually is. In order to really understand PAD, in the same way that we understood cancer in the 70s, right, so there's precedence for this. It's not like this is something that we're reinventing the wheel here. We just have to get people to care about it. There are a few things that need to happen. Number one, before we even discuss putting money into getting more data and ultimately figuring out new endpoints, we first have to make the public and the government understand that this is a real issue. We have to have some awareness. If you walk down the street and you stop 10 random people in the United States and ask them, what is peripheral artery disease? I would be stunned if two people were able to answer you, probably even one even though it plagues our country, right? We have over 200 million people affected by it. There's a substantial proportion of them that go on to have limb-threatening issues, and that number is increasing rapidly. By 2045, it's going to be a, a true epidemic. But no one feels it. You know, we're talking about things like climate change and gun control and, you know, coronary artery disease and stroke, and all of these things are important, cancer, but we've not given any attention to this. And because the public has not been made aware of it, there's no force on the government to aggressively go after it to, to actually stifle this public health issue. 
So let's say we begin there. How do we do that? We need to put out Netflix documentaries about what's going on with patients to actually get the public to understand what's happening and start to learn the terminology. We need to be, while there was that recent article in the New York Times and that was very unfortunate and not ideal, we do need to be in those spaces so that we can get our patients to understand what's going on because then those people will start to lobby the government to put money into something like the NIH essentially to do research on these subpopulations and really figure out what needs to work. Because right now, when they design these studies, they design them on historical data that actually makes no sense. The biggest problem with PAD studies is the heterogeneous nature of the PAD population. So then you end up eliminating so many patients that, for example, in the Voyager trial, only 30% of the patients that, that we see on a day-to-day -day basis would even be allowed to be in that Voyager trial, which means it's not generalizable which means we can't use it. And yet again, so much money and time and effort is going into something that's useless. Once the NIH and the government agree that this is a real issue and they make a concerted effort financially to invest in actually collecting data on these subpopulations, then they create benchmarks that are quality-based and outcomes-based. Again, exactly like what happened in cancer. So what would happen is instead of saying you have a patient that is black, this age and with these comorbidities, give them dual antiplatelet therapy, do whatever procedures you want on them and they're out the door, what we would be saying is, you have this patient, this patient should have an amputation risk of X percent. And we don't know what that is because no one's ever studied it. And if a doctor does procedures and they fall outside two standard deviations of that like amputation amount or that patency of that patient, then they're doing something incorrect and should not be allowed to be a part of the PAD movement or they need further training to do what the right thing is for that patient. And again, I say that this is something that's already been done. In 1971, President Nixon was lobbied by a number of cancer-based people who said, we've got a fundamental problem here. And he put up, at the time it was $700 million into doing research on trying to cure cancer. And it was just this large thing, I'm gonna cure cancer. It wasn't a specific thing. And that became their moonshot project. That evolved into what we have today, protocols. So somebody, you, you are a black woman in the middle of Mississippi, you got a breast lump, you show up at a, a hospital, you will get the same protocol as someone at Mass General because it's published national guidelines. And if a cancer doctor or cancer center doesn't meet those standardized qualifications, they get stripped from them, just like a transplant center or just like you know a, a trauma center. Why are we not doing it for actually a disease process that is more prevalent than all of those other diseases I just named off, including cancer? I, I think regulatorily, I mean, if you look at regulation and how programs deal with limb preservation, I think we are in dire need of the creation of centers of excellence. I mean, it's going to be the, like, you, you know, you can't do cancer in every facility in America. Correct. You can't do a, a cardiac transplant right. in every facility in America. But it should be comprehensive enough to not necessarily remove outpatient care. It should be comprehensive enough to say, hey, you guys want to have an OBL? Fine. Do wound care. Do vascular diagnostics. Do what you have to do and, 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 and provide the care that, that your community needs. Because if one day you go from 10,000 people that are doing this to, oh, hey, now it's the five centers of excellence. Tr trust me, America is oh, going yeah. to collapse. And so moving past the awareness bucket, 
And, and Zach, let me pull you in because I, you, work, you work under Joe Mills, current president of the SVS, also really good friend of, of, of mine personally for many years. Joe has been advocating for a long time about the value of classifying patients appropriately, yet every single damn study that comes out is about this Rutherford class five and six. And, and I know that it's hard to apply and I know that it goes from five to 64, but do you not feel that there is some logic and sense to this one classification? It's adding the three main variables that lead to amputation. And I'm, I'm kind of teasing out because you, you talked a lot about PED. Let's, let's kind of line the conversation on CLTI, right? Yeah. Because I think that's the biggest no, that's what problem yeah. right. that we have. I mean, yeah. you know, yes. I mean, the claudication and all that stuff, go, it's sure. not today conversation. There's a CLTI is a need of, of good data. And I don't think it's happening. And it's in our, you know, yeah. we need to be responsible. So I mean, classifying these patients appropriately, and this microphone sucks, so if you don't mind, yeah. get your mouth a little bit closer to it. Um, okay. Uh, yes, I, I think that one of the, we talked about cancer, one of the things that made it more easy to understand for many was the staging system they created. And I think that's what Dr. Mills based his system off the TMN classification for, for cancer. And that, and that can extrapolate an otherwise kind of complex problem into something that other practitioners can understand. I, I think specifically with CLTI, it's a very different disease than PAD. It's obviously within the, the umbrella, but everybody outside of limb salvage experts, whatever field they come from, seems to view these patients as a big group. And uh, oftentimes it's easier to enroll these large groups, including Claudicans, Rutherford, three and four patients. It's easier to get bigger numbers. It's easier to do trials. Uh, but another challenge I think is, I think that in a lot of facilities in the country for multiple reasons, both financially and uh, just assumptions that practitioners have outside of vascular specialists is that amputation is an acceptable outcome. Uh, it's a cheaper process for the hospital for have somebody come in to just get an amputation. They go home, they move on. A lot of interventions that requires multiple reinterventions, multiple restaging, long-term wound care, multiple practitioners involved. They don't want anything to do with that. I know in my facilities that I work in, they don't want anything to do with that. And I think generally, that's probably the norm for many facilities. It doesn't make them a lot of money on that side. And because of that, it's hard to get their buy-in. Uh, I don't know if others have had that same experience at the facilities you work in, but getting block time is difficult. It's just a leg. You know, it's a fempop no matter what you're doing. All fempops should be two-hour operations that the cardiac surgeons do, you know, with graft every time. You know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of, you know, as, you know, specific data for each patient that has to be fully understood and the disease isn't fully understood. And I think that's where these staging symptoms, uh, systems really do become advantageous because you can say, listen, this patient right here has this percent risk of amputation based on these parameters. And it's not all, it's not everything, it's not all the truth, it's not gonna always be right. But what it provides us is to say, this patient will get an amputation. And we know that these patients that get amputations, especially AKA's lifespan is, is dramatically dropped. So if you can get that message out, these patients get amputations, then these patients die. They die within a year, half of them will be dead within a year. I don't think that message is conveyed well on any level. Uh, and I think that's something that we, we have to continue to try to fight against. Uh, 
Well, so I agree. Are you, you, can, you're, can part I, of a, you're part of a training program, right, yeah. Dell? You've got residents. Yeah. Can I, do you make them? Yeah. Do you classify your? Do you use Wi-Fi on a daily basis? If I'm honest, no. Why? It's hard. This huh? is ridiculous. It's hard. The data. No, what is this? There's, there's nothing there's hard a, about it. No, I mean, I, I do kind of have a concept of Wi-Fi classification in my okay, mind. I'm going to disown you. I'm going to call the American Board of Vascular Surgery. Oh, no. I, to be honest, I, I not every... trained under Joe Mills and Miguel Montero Baker. We I, both talk I about know. this every day. I know. And we're, but why? I, I use the general Where's concept the of it. But to be honest, I just, I don't know if it changes what I do. It's uh, like on a, here's the yeah. deal. It's not supposed to change what yeah. you do. It's supposed to at least give us the same talking points. And then as your trainees understand these parameters, mm -hmm. you're training them automatically of thinking, where's the infection status? What's the wound complexity? Of course, yeah. What's happening with... So it's not about, is it, is it going to change the way you do things? Yeah. Is We need to normalize the way we talk about this so that we can eventually get together and talk the same language. Yeah. And I mean, are you making every, I'm sorry, Anita, are you making every one of your residents do Wi-Fi? No, like, not at all. I oh my God. Think, I no. but, but you know what? But you're bringing up done, a good I'm point done. though. Can, maybe maybe Wi-Fi needs to Joe, Joe Mills, if you're listening go. to this, we need to do better. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the thing is that this is, this is part of any new technology, right? If it's a pain in the ass to use, no, no, new technology in the sense like you have that it's, it's the same no, no, it's, it's the same overly complicated it's overly There's a lot complicated of friction. and people don't want to it's yeah. just like that s curve with technology if you don't if you go to any of these technology companies that are out there and say why is it that people aren't using actually we're, we're looking right at one right now that's quite complex to uh deploy their uh their uh, i won't say the name but uh, no. you know complex to deploy their particular stent and there's a re so what do we do it Everybody sounds like hooks to <laughs> He said it, yeah, not me. Guys. But you know, why, out, why, why does everyone love gore? There's a reason for it. And like, and, and if you want to, so that's the thing. If you that's want people yeah. to, yeah, if you want people to use the thing, it has to be with either. There's only two ways. You incentivize or you penalize. So if you penalize, that means that you'd have to go through the government and the government would say that in order to reimburse you, we have to know what the Wi-Fi classification is. Or you incentivize by making it better for me to be able to use it and put it in my note. And my, my intern, who's the one who's actually going to be doing it, doesn't go complaining that they don't want to be on our service because it's already such a pain in the butt because of what you just described. And I don't think any of the stuff that we're talking about, we're like the ants in this. You know, we, we are the ones trying to lift up the little leaves and take it back to the nest. But the fact of the matter is that unless it comes from the top, it's not something that everyone is going to do. So... Like, for example, you know, right now, it's up to 50% of people in the United States get amputated without an angiogram. Now, I know they're all the, like, vascular surgeons jump in. But what about the infection? And what about the, yeah, of course, I know that. Went to Stanford. I'm just saying that, like, you do have to, you, do, you know what I'm saying? But, but obviously, for the most part, anybody who's, like, chilled and talking, who's a vascular surgeon, knows that you should do an angiogram before you decide someone needs to. Some of these wounds really look like total shit. And when you do the angiogram, you realize, you know what? If I just cuddle this person enough, they will heal. Yeah. Right? So we all know that. So, but that needs to be forced upon us. The other thing that needs to be discussed, like you were saying before, is we aren't penalized for doing amputations 
that may not be necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same thing as like, again, cancer. If you have a patient that walks in with a breast lump, it would be psychotic to do a mastectomy on that person or to tell them, hey, your palliative care, go home, without having done any imaging, right. without knowing what the hell is going on. They may be riddled with stage four cancer, in which case palliative is appropriate. So it's not that it's a failure, but we have to have the processes to say, we did everything for this person's life. And, and by the way, way less money for the healthcare system, breast, breast related pathology than diabetic foot and PAD related pathology. What, one like some... so much less, yeah. but so much more media, so much more coverage, mm -hmm. so much more. That goes back to that public awareness uh, I'm talking oh, about. Yeah, and, and th this is always gonna be a, a group of patients that's somewhat marginalized. They, they have a generally a lower education level. They're right. uh, a lot of underserved populations. It's a higher preponderance. And it just isn't a cause that people really like to hammer home because not a lot of people know people with this disease or at well, least aren't aware of it. Diabetes? Everybody knows diabetes. About diabetes. Is, diabetes is, is, is becoming a larger portion of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the education around that is very rarely, this is the problems you have. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, sometimes you'll hear, oh yeah, you get amputations, but for the most part, it's not tied in. It's not tied in. And, th and that's what you the got most... the sugars. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your leg. No, it doesn't. But there's, there's a no, no, higher than... we know yeah. that what we're saying is the public doesn't know that these two things are connected. I think when I tell you that. when when they go to their PCP and they're like, hey, oh, you're, uh, you know, uh, hemoglobin A1C is seven. We've got an issue. You probably have diabetes. I'm going to start you on this drug. They're not going out of the office thinking like, shit, I'm going to end up in a wheelchair with double AKs. They should. And on dialysis. I understand, I but they're not. That, that, yeah. That's the, what we're trying to say is that there's a problem there. Can I go back one second to... What? By the way, this podcast is half uh, all of us interest and then half uh, his therapy. <laughs> so, yeah, he, uh, Lucas has identified a lot of issues within himself, oh, but he doesn't feel comfortable talking or maybe spending the money. I don't know what it is yeah. with a therapist. So he brings these problems here. Yeah. So I'm anyway, let's hear it. Let's go back. Get him a couch and, next time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't love the idea of a centralized small group of people telling a large majority of people how to do things. So the, the, the coming from the top thing. So you um, don't like democracy. That's no, no, it's yeah, in America is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I know. It's a joke. The other way around. Um, I know exactly. But wouldn't it be so this concept, wouldn't this concept change things so much? Because of that compensation comes from time spent in the OR for a complex procedure. Meaning if I so if I go in and I do a two hour angio, do multi-level and I get blood flow. Okay, we know how long that's going to last, and we know, and if there's a big wound, it's there's a lot less friction for me with my clinic, with all my other cases. There's going to be a bias for me to go in and do that instead of using that vein and going in and doing a tibial bypass. It's going to take me four or five hours. My back's going to hurt, my knees are going to hurt, and I'm going to be hungry uh, and cranky. And the compensation for it. I'll probably get a higher conversation if I code correctly for the two-hour angio. So before we go start asking, you know, revive Nixon and bring him back from the dead and, you know, ask him to spend, I don't know how many trillions of dollars, how about we just change basic incentives? Basic incentives to do things that we know work. I think it was Ross Perot, actually, that came up with RVUs. No. Is it? Huh. I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. It was your Ross Perot. No. Yeah. RVUs, yeah. our current um, bleep system, yeah. 
was his. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that was that man. Thank you very much and, for and, relative yeah. value unit of shit. With time you talk about, though, that time in the OR doing the procedure you think is better for the patient, if that can be reimbursed all the time you spend with the patient, because we know this is one of three issues. So taking time to do wound care, see yep. patients frequently, things that don't really bill very well at all unless you're yeah. unless you're doing you know probably unnecessary procedures in operating rooms you don't get it reimbursed for that at all and in our practices in academic centers that's probably okay but the average person you know that's doing this nationally especially in the communities that are underserved are probably not vascular surgeons that are specialists in this a lot of times it's orthopedic surgeons podiatrists doing all the non revascularization procedures or it's somebody that does the revascularization and then they're done. It's not a, I'm involved in every process. I think we, sometimes when we work in big academic centers, we kind of talk down and say, Austin, oh, like some- Austin is not big. I'm sorry. I just need to you throw, are correct. Just need to throw that in. You are we correct. say big academic. I mean, it's Austin Dale. You know, yeah. you're sitting next to um, Mass General Hospital I'm next to you. She's you know, gonna be president of the US. there, but anyway. Yeah. Okay, big academic guy, keep going. <laughs> well, we're in small academic centers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we kind of talk down to people that are, you know, in wherever, rural, wherever. And, yeah. and no, people do good things and do bad things everywhere. Correct. That's why it should be outcomes-based. So I, I agree. I think the combination, it's all of these things are the right move. The question is, the, it's got to be like set up in dominoes. We, the problem... You asked originally, the original question was how, what's the issue? Why can't we fix it? The problem is exactly what we're doing right now, this whack-a-mole nonsense. Let's say we fix the incentive system, all right? Let's say tomorrow, and by the way, this, we all know this is coming down the pike, the whole idea of like value-based care in the idea that they're going to say, and that's what the FDA is doing, right? They're saying like, we don't give a shit about the patency. We want to know, did the wound heal? Correct. Without understanding that... There's a million things in between, like the, the below the knee balloon is not responsible for the wound healing unless that same company has to go and do all these other bits. It's like, you know, saying that this chemotherapy drug cannot come onto the market because did the patient survive without realizing that they needed the radiation and the surgery and the other components. And so what we are now starting to do is say, okay, the reimbursement thing is a big thing. Let's go after that. Okay, let's say we fix it, but we still have the data garbage thing. We still don't, you said earlier, you know, like, what is the right amputation rate? We don't, the Clarity study is about to come out, which was just this observational study to say, in the United States, all things considered, all things, whether you're an orthopedic surgeon or whether you didn't have you know, the, the appropriate angiogram, whether you're sitting in the middle of Mississippi, what is our actual amputation rate across the country? So it's different for all of us. And once that number comes out, at least we can start to have some benchmark of what is appropriate. And then we would say for a person, I mean, imagine like a stratification system where we said you fit these variables and now we've got artificial intelligence coming out, which we'd be able to use and like other like amazing technological advances that can allow us to really risk stratify. So we could say this particular human being, person, has this chance of amputation over this much time. However, if they were to stop smoking and get their HbA1c to this, their amputation rate chance would drop to that. And then you would see if a practitioner who's caring for that population, so you don't get penalized. Let's say I'm doing a thousand amputations because I keep getting patients that are so far gone in their CLTI that I can only amputate. I shouldn't get penalized for that. The same way the big academic centers shouldn't get penalized when they get the crazy cancer patients that no one else can deal with, right? They shouldn't get their mortality rates hit 
just because they're doing more complex cases. And if we did something like that, we would be able to fix the reimbursement system and actually personalize the way that we do care. But at this point, unless we begin at the first step, which is getting the public to care about this problem so that they can lobby the government such that we then get you know, taken up with the wave, it's not going to work. So us, we're, we're doing it backwards. We are not going to be able to do it. It has to start up there. And if you look at anything, cancer, heart disease, stroke, all these things came from public awareness that then pushed things forward. I, I, I actually am concerned at this point that the public is more aware of overuse and Exactly. And, and yeah. that's yeah. what they think about now, because that's where the that's the, the you know, the, the squeaky wheel at this point. That's where, there's no, yep. we no lost the narrative. Mm -hmm. The narrative's so how, how gone. How do we gain the narrative? Then? Yeah, I'll so tell you, we, quality, we doing I, exactly what we're doing right now. Yes. Because I know as a, I dream, I don't know if I know, but I dream that maybe this podcast will fall into the hands of somebody as you know, to, to Anaida's point, that actually has some ability to change and exert change. And, you know, offline we were talking about your involvement in politics and such, but we have to be in that conversation. We have to be in that ring and we have to be pushing this. And I am so in disagreement with just this whole media thing. And, 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 and let's not get our, our division, but we cannot let the narrative be the narrative of somebody behind a desk that has absolutely no skin in this game. Yeah. This is the game of patience. This is the game of us being there every single day away from our families, understanding what it looks like for somebody when you tell them, hey, I'm gonna cut your leg tomorrow and please sign the consent. Mm. You can't be behind a desk somewhere in New York City writing about this and then making the world a little harder to deal with when we're having all these other conversations. Right. So. We have to regain it, and through through this, through through our uh, amendments, our, our rights of, of communication and, and, and discussion. And here's what's cool: is every single thing I say is reflected on my company too. By the way, because mm -hmm. you guys all have to say like, my words are my own; they have nothing to do with yeah. my institution. My institution has no yeah. knowledge of one of the <laughs> great, great for you guys. Yeah. I don't care. Hope is all about doing what we, we think should be done. Yeah. But anyway. Well, okay, my, my, let's I, I love what? that. I love that. But in one of my fears of things coming from the top is that people like you will be less incentivized to do what you're doing, because I think it's great. And I think you have, you know, you have a lot of experience, you know, you've done, you've seen a lot of things that work, a lot of things that don't, and then you've created your own thing. So I think that overall, the opportunity to do that is a benefit to patients, to us, to the, to the field. So I think things sometimes that when things come from the top, from people that don't don't understand, don't have the experience that is almost impossible, like to to get to where you are, uh, then they they won't understand it. They'll make mistakes, you know. That's not, why we have to be in Congress. Yeah. We are the ones that go to the top. It's not them. It's yeah, but us, also right? when we say so, we, we're like I don't know. Like, is the perspective of somebody that comes from a big academic institution huge no huge. it would it, a huge that, does it, does it awesome, does, does that is that does that perspective uh, value your approach that's a question but that that's the way that's the the whole idea right so we we can't have it both ways if we're going to complain that it's an issue right then we have to do the dirty work of for, number one 
stopping the in-house fighting. The idea that interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, and vascular surgeons are even in any disagreement about stuff is ridiculous because that is how we actually got here, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that this nonsense is happening is because we lit our own house on fire and then we're not, we're surprised that the public is staring at us now, right? Now, uh, there are absolutely disagreements in how things can be done. People, you know, you, right now, if you, you put an angio up and you ask 10 people how they would do things, you're going to see discrepancy. But that discrepancy exists even within vascular surgeons, within IRs and within IC. So the idea that it would be like they're somehow separate is what started to divide us. And any time that that division happens, we end up in a situation where we're sort of infighting and everyone's got their popcorn and watching. And so I think... What you were saying about this idea that, like, who's going to get up to the top and then start to, you know, manifest their feelings on others. Obviously, this is a utopia I'm describing, but the, the, what the goal that you're trying to work to, and even democracy ultimately is not perfect, right? But it's the best system we got in, in the world today. It has to be a constant hope towards this idea that everyone is going to have a voice and they can sit at a table like this. And I bet you today, right now, even though all four of vascular surgeons, you could get, you could pull Kamar, who's an IR right now, you could pull an IC, and we could sit at this table right now and write very thorough guidelines that we would all agree on are acceptable. It may not be what I do, but it's not the wrong thing to do. And if we get something like that passed in Congress, for example, what I just said, Medicare will not reimburse for an amputation, assuming they're not septic and this and that, but Medicare will not reimburse for an amputation until an angiogram is performed. Right? Such yeah. a simple thing. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Not in the law. So that's where we begin. And I think we do these small battles and then it turns into something greater. Value-based care is not new. I mean, we're not making, you know, this is not, we're, we're not, it's, it's, I mean, the wheel's been invented. Mm -hmm. I think we need to talk to nephrologists. Really, these people are phenomenal business people. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody hates you, them you guys thought i was gonna say <laughs> clinicians uh, yeah, they, they are clinicians but they're phenomenal business people um and they are really some of the spearheaded they're spearheading uh value-based care i mean the you know cms just last year approved the uh, kidney care program and they're going in at risk. I mean, they're 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 taking care of the patient. They're doing everything they need to do. They're trying to push education. They're trying to push. This is where I think we should probably go to. I think you're not going to take fee for service off the table. So please, all you trolls out there that are going to say, you know, eh, blah, blah, blah. I'm not. It's not going to go away anytime soon. You go and you go through your ASC because that's what's going to happen. They're going to shut down all these OBLs. They're going to shift all that reimbursement to the ASCs. They're going to try to create this because they want control and hospitals want control. Hospitals control everything. And they want to be, and then now the hospitals are going to come to you, SAC, and to you, Lucas, and be like, oh, we're going to build you an ASC and we're going to pay you better. And it's all about control. It doesn't matter. That's going to continue going and hopefully it'll lead to better care if there are people like you, phenomenal people on this table, spearheading those efforts. But there should be an alternative. And that alternative is value-based care programs. I firmly believe in centers of excellence that are outpatient-based and that have all the capabilities to take care longitudinally at a partially at risk. Meaning I don't, you know, I can't take over if the guy's going to have a heart attack, but I can take over the ingrown nail, the fact that this patient needs a pair of shoes, 
the fact that this patient needs an ultrasound every so often, and the fact that that patient needs to be on statins and on antiplatelet therapy, and that I'm going to make sure that he's on semaglutide when he has to be, that's what I can take my risk on. And I think that there's going to be, hopefully, a plethora of these places. And I'm not talking about the shitty places that are just doing 37227, 37227 every day. I'm talking about formal, adequate, at-risk, value-based care, outpatient, infused with AI, to your point, that are going to be co-piloting AIs, that are going to tell Medicare Advantage plans, hey, let's talk about this. Let's negotiate. So then hope AI is going to come and going to find the right practitioners, is going to infuse them with the right knowledge base, is going to give them an AI co-pilot, is going to tell them this patient needs this, 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 and this, and it's going to render the best solutions. And you're going to save money for the system, and, but you're going to make more money for yourself. And that's alignment, because right now we're disaligned. When you're paying me more money to do an atherectomy, that's wrong. That shouldn't be an incentive. Yeah. And there's, there's nobody commenting if it's needed. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Nobody but it is needed. That's the thing is like I use atherectomy a lot of times. It, it's needed. But it shouldn't not be. Not everybody. I, no, of course not. It's not, not needed 98% of the time. Not 98% of the time, but it's needed a lot. So it shouldn't be trashed either. Okay? And yes, there's maybe not great data, but also there's not great data for sheaths. Yeah. And I use a sheath every freaking day. Well, All I'm saying is there's some things that we've lost <laughs> of the perspective. It's a tool that you need to use when you need to use it as a surgeon. When do you call for a pledge? When you know it. Do you get paid for it? No. But the issue is that it, it's, it's paid for specifically. So the, the payment should be... It should be removed. We talk, it should be what are, we, what are we accomplishing? And it should be in this patient, you know, whatever the right percentage is that needs atherectomy gets attherectomy. And the patients that don't, don't get it. And Incentivizing doing it. Programs, I think so value-based care is, is great, but who, who is the adjudicator of that? Who makes, who's actually checking or who knows? Is there a reference lab that's looking at every angiogram saying they made the right decision? It falls on people to be good. Value-based <laughs> care programs. No, no, Zach. Value-based care programs require you to have very clear metrics and return to the investment company that's paying for the care of that patient these are the patients, and that's where I think we need to, that's why this discussion is great, and obviously we're not going to get to all these points because we're already yeah. running on time, but it's, for example, your uh, granulation percentages, contraction of wound, uh, the necessity or not of opioids. Like all these things are, that's what they're going to track you on. So it's like how many patients are getting amputated? Yes, that's a great one, but it sucks because maybe the best thing is how many are off their Percocet? By the way, has anybody seen this new Netflix thing? Yes. Holy shit. Whoa. I don't... What's you... it called? It was, uh... Jenna. Oh, it's called Painkiller. Painkillers. Yeah, pain Did you watch it? I watched it, yeah. Uh, I don't give people Percocet. I don't... Okay, well, I do. And, yeah. and it makes me... It freaks me out because I now I... Well, I don't give them Oxycontin. The show's yeah, about Oxycontin. Oxycontin. <laughs> but yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's an issue. Right? Yeah, These patients will issue. come to... And so, hey, if you say, hey, That's my patients, one. let's say my whole patients have less than 1% utilization of, 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 of more than five days of opioids. That's huge. Yeah. And right. that could be a, a phenomenal endpoint on the care for CLTI yeah. patients. That if will you take save more people than that, any other rectum device you have to be on careful, Earth. But you have to be careful about that, too, because you can end up in a, Like, let's say your percentage of patients that you do DVAs on, so just, let's just make this up, is 80%. And I am doing just standard, right. you know... Yeah. Now, we all know those DVA patients in the time where they're, they're healing are on a ton of narcotic, just because we're using this yeah, example. Yeah. So, you know, the, that's where the data part of it comes in. The, 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 this 
all or none thing that the government does is not appropriate either. For example, a PE is a never event. On what planet is a PE a never event? Are you kidding me? So, but but somebody allowed that to slide through, and now we all know what happens as a result if you get a PE and how how people react in the hospital, at least in big and small academic sense. But 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 I think you know if until before you implicate or if you actually go and you put out something like this value-based care, we would have to say that this is what's appropriate for this cohort of patients. And before we do that, we don't. So that's what I'm saying. We don't want to chase after the endpoint, and make the same mistakes we've made over the last 50 years. Because when you keep trying to put band-aids on stuff, ultimately you have a bad outcome. We have to rebuild this from the bottom up. Bomb what we have and rebuild everything. It's called anarchy. So, yeah. <laughs> Chaos, it. anarchy. It's Wait, not are confusing, we, are we advocating for anarchy? Are we advocating Absolutely. for down? This, this you know, podcast advocates for anarchy at all levels. We build the top yeah. and then I walk <laughs> over here as the queen. <laughs> Anarchy okay, I see where we're going with this. Developmental construction. Anyway, <laughs> folks, listen, this is a great time to stop. Um, okay, well, they open, they open another <laughs> bottle of okay, wine. Okay, so we keep going. We, keep, yeah, no. yeah. Uh, we have uh, conferences, we have family members, we have other th- things to attend to. Let me just say, guys, thank you very much. This has been thank you. enlightening, fun, constructive, intellectually ch- challenging, um, and, mm-hmm. and it's been in line with what, what we love. So yeah. thank you, guys. Zach, Anaida. Thank Appreciate you. you being part Thanks of this, uh, this Flow podcast. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah, muchas gracias. Pura vida. Thank you. Bye-bye.